0: Hello and welcome to episode number 333 of the Armin Show podcast. Is it getting better and better? I think so. We're one third of the way through a thousand, if you want to think about it that way. Subtracting one. Pretty exciting stuff. I like the momentum and activity, and this is set to be a classic, if you will. On this one, I will keep the introduction short. We have the author of a book, The Art of Insubordination, and previous books as well. I always look up previous books when I am uh, checking. It is... Todd Kashtan, I believe pronounced correctly, professor and uh, author. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, so good to be here.
0: I'm very glad to have you on. You have books in the background. I like books. Long live books. Now, (laughs) a lot to discuss. I like the topic of your book speaks to me because insubordination, counterforce, bringing your own nature without being limited, not exactly blending in at all times is my category by default. It's not even really my choosing. It's, I have no other choice in that matter. Before we get into the content of the book, what led you to being where you are? Why are you putting out content? Why is it not kept for you? And why speak on insubordination at all?
1: that's great i love the i love the superhero origin stories but let me be i'm like a c level superhero maybe x level superhero um i mean this there's there's two different ways of thinking of the origin of this book i mean one of them is i was raised by a single mom with a dad that walked out when i was two so my twin brother and i fended for ourselves of like, what does it mean to be a boy? What does it mean to be like a man? And I grew up in a neighborhood that was 96% or higher black. And so I have very interesting conversations with my friends who talk about code switching. And when I hang out with a, a group of people that are not looking like me, I often say, listen, code switching is not something that's specific to one group. It's actually anytime time you don't look like or you don't act like the remaining members of the people surrounding you. You have to code switch. And I learned very quickly that I had two sets of interests. I had one interest that I publicly expressed, which was, this is this is the 1980s. So we're talking about the birth of Public Enemy, and we're talking about you know the Beastie Boys, and we're talking about rap, but I loved heavy metal. And in my neighborhood, nobody was listening to Iron Maiden, and nobody's listening to Metallica and Judas Priest and when guns and roses came out i said who are the guns and who are the roses and they're merging together into the super band so this was a long term back burning project of how can i cultivate all of the knowledge and wisdom that i can gather from 60 years of science and from my life so that someone like me does not have to go through the horribly inefficient trial and error process to figure out how do you become an independent, authentic being and figure out who you are and navigate the complexities of the social world, especially if you are the minority or feel like you're the minority. So that was like, that's like, that's the real origin of this. But the other one is, this is kind of like a trilogy. My first book was on curiosity because nobody was talking about it at the time. And now it's a hot topic. The second one was on maybe we're too simplistic about how we think about things that are so-called negative. And we should go and go back to Carl Jung and say in the yin yang, you forget that in the, in the yang is a little bit of white and in the yin is a little bit of black. And there's some benefit of having mindlessness every once in a while, letting your mind wander. And we know this now, and there's some benefit for being having fearlessly dominant, which is a dimension of psychopathy and f- People like Teddy Roosevelt and Chuck Yeager, the only reason they became such amazing characters in history is because they were a little bit close to the average level of psychopathy, but they used it for the forces of good. And then this book was, how do you hone your persuasive powers and your psychological strengths to influence the world for good, despite the fact that you might not have the power, status, or platform? That's a simple version.
0: Right. What would you say are some personality traits of yours that lend themselves to speaking on this category, like big five or things you were pulled towards?
1: I love that you're playing the psychologist out of the two of us. (laughs) I mean, you are the more well-dressed of the two of us. So there's, there's that going for you, but that's an easy one for me. I mean, it doesn't really matter because I always write and I always speak. And even on social media, when I communicate, I never think of, I never think of what would be valuable to me. I try to tell her everything to the audience. Like what do I think the world needs right now? I mean, to me, I know this This is not just a punt of your question, but to me, we're there's a lot of chaotic social structures right now that are crumbling. You know, you had GameStop with Wall Street. You have religion is on a precipitous decline over the past 20 years, and it's at its lowest rate in the history of humanity. You have the average person is working. I forgot what the number is now, but I think it's 15 different companies you'll work for over the course of your lifetime. But that's taking account. Is it taking account of entrepreneurs who find their own company when they're 12 and stick with the one company? Who knows? But the thing is, you're not sticking with a lifetime relationship with Ford or Chevrolet or Apple. You're, you're bouncing around. You're being headhunted. And that's, that speaks a lot about residential mobility is we're not living in the same spot. People are moving away from their family and childhood friends. And all of these cultural changes are not necessarily for the good. And how do you transform the world in a way such that you have a safeguard against conformity mistakes? About if, if these trends are going in the wrong direction, who's going to be your protector? Who's going to be the watchman or the watchwoman here? And for me, it's principled rebels. And, and so it's not about any personality profile, it's about how do you harness your message and your strengths and know your audience well.
0: Mm-hmm. Long live knowing the audience. Sometimes in the past I have spoken <laughs> and not known where, where, who am I reaching? Am I reaching the people I am looking to reach? Who do you group- imagine
1: is the is the audience of this podcast? When you picture a group of five people,
0: right? So it would be well if it was five people, it would be somewhat logical oriented, and uh, maybe book reader, also a person who is. Long live curious, trying to learn a bit. Uh, It's clearly someone who has growth in mind, or else this would be almost useless and likes a little bit of uh, sometimes punch factor or energy because there are maybe other individuals who discuss, but it doesn't have, it's a bit more um, encyclopedic, if you will.
1: Like somber and subdued. And we're talking in the fifth person in a scientific article kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it has
0: that sort of like um things are a bit like down concepts that is cool but it's not my it's never been my form so i bring a little variation to that of an upbeat nature if you will at times
1: yeah yeah you have an interesting combination i've listened to only two episodes but you have this very unusual combination of extreme levity an extreme need for cognition of like you enjoy highly effortful thinking and that combination is just the dream cocktail party companion and i just hope that this your personality rubs off on more people that i meet randomly in bars and in parks over the years it will and also
0: i've talked to th- thousands and thousands of people in bars and at parks so i've passed it on a little bit in los angeles county i'm on like <laughs> oh, one good. of the most social people here which is good to that's a good point. Yeah, the 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 cognition element is very important for me because it's like my area that I I just automatically gravitate towards, and I don't see it much anywhere. So clearly, it's something that's like a my area of what to bring. We see our little areas.
1: No, that's I cool. like that you you that you know, you know. I remember when I, when I wrote the last book, I had this PowerPoint slide and it had like a 50% approval rating tops. And it was, how would you feel if you had zero narcissism? And then I put underneath this, this slide, what do you do with your strengths? How do you display them on a daily basis? And it was just this, this conversation for people to have. And once we, the murmur in the room slowed down, the consensus was, I never thought of narcissism, low levels, we're talking not narcissistic personality disorder, low grade, is you know that you have strengths, everybody does who's listening. You have a, a jagged profile of, you know, yours ends up being clearly, you like, you have social effervescence and you love to talk to strange characters and, and you, you can jostle around with characters and you don't take yourself seriously, but you like your ideas. And if you know your strengths, it is so painful to know that there are people that hide them because they're worried that it won't, it'll be lacking in humility and they haven't gotten approval to expose them yet. And I just want to say to people constantly, if you have amazing, extraordinary qualities, don't worry about the rest of us at the low rungs. I will watch you, observe you, admire you, give you some namastes with my hands and try to deconstruct what makes you awesome and steal that and integrate it into my own personality. So don't keep it to yourself.
0: We're on the same page there. When I see something that's like a little kernel of something a person's reaching for, I'm like, that's where I show up and I try to build it at that moment. And once they're on the way, I disappear very quickly. But for those moments of like, can I, you can do it, go. It's nice. Yeah, yeah. We're on the same page. Oh, speaking of being on the same page, I want to point that out. This is a bigger picture item. When you mesh with individuals or you have a similar form or something you've always went towards in the same way, such as me and or taught in this case, it is automatic. There's no extra step required. And I wanted to bring an alternate example. Uh, on a rare trip, I went to Glasgow last summer and I had an episode with a chemistry professor there and it was automatic. Boom. And he's the head of the department and runs the whole thing. But we were like colleagues for a bit and we still get along great and we check each other's stuff. But was automatic and he's far away and i'm over here but then there's people here maybe 10 minutes away or five minutes away there's millions of people and most of them it won't happen like that so when you see that you have to be like okay this is a uncommon thing and i support this have you had that feeling at times
1: well it's i stole this from maslow which was he had some phrase i'm going to butcher it uh, but mine works better on a bumper sticker because maslow wasn't thinking about twitter is that Transcenders attract Transcenders instantaneously. And it fits with the Carl Jungian idea of synchronicity. I mean, I should probably say what happened with this podcast here. We were about to enter about 17 conversations simultaneously as if we went through a wormhole and we both agreed simultaneously, let's start the podcast within three seconds of meeting each other. I mean, that's all it took. And let's not save anything on the cutting room floor of any juicy conversations we get into. What's interesting about what you say is to think about what questions or what, what softballs can individuals throw out where you can figure out whether you meet on the same intellectual, emotional and, and psychological rungs, you know, or at least you're in the ballpark of each other and you're not la- allowing the superficial surface level characteristics interfere with that potential synchronicity. Because I think we have, you know, it's part of this book is we have a natural impulse: is people that don't look like me, talk like me, and have the same energy level at first five second thin slice of behavior. We kind of like to, we like to package label and categorize quickly, friend, foe, or irrelevant. And it's a good heuristic, but one, one great strategy is to try to disarm that shortcut And say to yourself, there's probably something great to learn from this person. How can I speed up the process to figure out that they are a portal of wisdom and they realize that I want to extract that wisdom?
0: Right on that point. So I would talk to thousands of people for years. And what you're saying, I would kind of call it a filter. There was a time when I would say everything. And then there was a two-week period where I'd go up to people and say, is your favorite color teal? I think something like that. And at the time, it was just fun, along with other things I was saying. But later on, I look back, I'm like, that is a superb thing to find people like myself. Because if the person is automatically like, that's odd. We're not going to get along automatically. It's impossible. So it has like layers to it. I thought about that simple little thing. It sounded funny at the time, but it was like a way to find my people super quickly in a way. So filter
1: out. How do you land on that question? It's such an unusual one.
0: Well, I, there's so many others than that. I, I've said every potential phrase ever, but I like the color teal and then colors is always a really, uh, everybody sees, most people see colors and then it is out there a little bit. I always have to say things that are a little bit atypical. If I said something that was too typical, we're not getting anywhere and I might end up having a conversation about something that is very straightforward, a local baseball game. And it's not my, it's not my thing.
1: Yeah, I always call that uh, skipping the rungs of intimacy is there's this norm where we're supposed to work our way up gradually and slowly. We're like, hey, where'd you go to college? Hey, what was your major? Hey, um, did you play a sport? Hey, um, uh, did you see this movie from the 1980s and 90s? Like, are you a fan of Christopher Nolan's movies? Which by the way, that, let's, let's say that's a good question. And then we work our way up. And then finally we get to the topic we actually wanna do as opposed to just throwing out whatever is on your mind at the time i remember when i was single and i think it was college and i was home for the summer and my best friend was dating a female bodybuilder she was huge she, she she did um french curls with 55 pound dumbbells for anyone that has looked that up on google for that what that physical maneuver is it's an insane thing for a 300 pound man it's off the charts you're in the 99th percentile As a woman, her biceps were the size of our heads. And she brought one of her female bodybuilder friends. And it was so intimidating because she had veins that were busting out of her forearms and her neck. You could have, you know, this glass bottles could have been thrown at her and she would not even move. She would just kind of wipe it off with two fingers. And I didn't know what to talk about. So I just started talking about what was on my mind at the time. I had just read a John Lilly book. And I was obsessed with human-dolphin communications. And we were sitting at a table in this bar next to a dance next to a dance floor. And I was like explaining of why dolphins, cetaceans, are the best people to talk to, best creatures to talk to for humans because they survived the ice age. And she didn't say anything for like 45. It was like I was in a, you know, I was the the elf in some Shakespearean live play in Central Park. And then finally, I told my friend, listen, let's just go to the bathroom. And I'm like, I got to get out of here. And he started cracking up. And he's like, Todd, here's the deal. This girl is madly into you, but she's never had anyone treat her like she's an intelligent being. She has no idea what to say to you, which is a great moment because now going a few years later into my scientific hat, this concept of naive realism, it's this term where we assume that other people hold the same beliefs and ideas and attitudes and preferences that we have and we impose that on other people so if i feel uncomfortable because i don't think i know what to talk about we assume the other person is has a great equanimity and is in really comfortable in their position and in this case i was completely 180 degrees off the mark
0: i've had a we have some corollaries here but i have had similar circumstance and Yes, we don't see it at first. Sometimes it'll be like, oh, it was oh, cold toward me. But then actually on their end, it was like, whoa, 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 wow, That's, I don't know what to do with that. But they didn't mean to be cold. It was just a bit much of processing, I guess, or understanding. That's funny. You share some scenarios of sorts. That happens. Right. We should also, I think it's a good idea to go in the direction of people want to work with us. So, if it's not working, it might be something we're doing that's kind of uh, a bit much, or they might feel like they're being railroaded or something. I don't know. Something
1: like that. Yeah. I mean, th- th- so it's one of the things that's missing in society right now. You have, you finally have tools where every single person that is an amputee can find every other amputee on the planet and form <laughs> these niche groups together and talk about, hey, So how, like, how are you working out? What's your routine? You know, there's probably Instagram pages of of like, what are the workouts transform everything that I do. And if, if you have no limbs or just, you know, a few missing that are happening, it's a wonderful tool at the same time that you can connect every niche group in the world. You have the extreme precipitous drop in empathy and charity and assumption of benevolent intent in these conversations. And and I I don't think it's an accident that these two extreme things are happening simultaneously, but I wonder how you can rectify the balance of having having the opportunities for these connections and then creating this psychological safe, safe place for people to mess around and experiment and toss out ideas that are half developed kind of like comedians that are developing their material on Tuesdays and Wednesdays in preparation for Fridays and Saturdays. I always imagine social media would be the Tuesdays and Wednesdays and everybody treats it as if it's the prime time show at nine o'clock on a Saturday. And that's a norm that I wonder when we're going to realize, why would you create such a stressful environment when it's unnecessary?
0: Right. That is a bit why it has transitioned uh, somewhat from more curated, perfect imagery to um, the other social media where it's a little bit more playful and active and less edited now is liked more because the other one, it's, there's a pushback against it because of what you're saying. There's no room to play and figure out. Then you have to be in like a narrow space that's very limiting. The adjustment had to happen.
1: Interesting. What's what's the what's the alternative one where people are well, still allowed to have the half baked ideas and there's a accepting appreciation of that?
0: I'll say there's more of that on TikTok, if it will, uh, versus uh, Instagram, because if you posted those things there, they'd be like, that's not really professional. If you posted those things there, they'd say, get out of here, you perfectly curated individuals. More so <laughs> now, this this is becoming a bit more that way, but you can see that the younger Individuals are opposed to, they like things where it's outdoors or there's actual people or it's like, stop fooling me is basically the message of the younger crowd. Stop fooling me. So, cause the other, everybody like, I have a perfect team and I edit and then this, and it looks like that. But when you go outside it doesn't look like any of this imagery, if I go drive around, I don't see any of this, <laughs> none of it. So it's kind of a funny counterpoint. These things are adjusting slowly after the fact, but we see it way earlier because we're looking into it. I would
1: think. Yeah, yeah. I, I and I think there's there's a parallel for thinking about the adult world in the workplace which is everybody says that they value creativity. What's what's the the Silicon Valley mantra which is fail quick fail fast, fail quick.
0: break things, move fast and yeah. break things
1: kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, move fast, break things, fail often, fail quickly and everybody says that but what they really mean when you actually do consultations for these organizations (laughs) is if your idea has an 80% or above probability of working, then yeah, move quickly and develop ideas and do it fast and then fail and make mistakes. But when you get the lower than 50% probability, people have a big problem with that. And that's that, that message has to be very clear. You have to be at lower than 50% probability and you have to ask yourself more about the person than the messenger. I mean, the messenger rather than the message, which is, does this individual created enough social capital and creative currency, otherwise known as idiosyncrasy credits in the scientific nerdy world, where you're going to believe that they can have carte blanche to do things and say things and explore things, not because they want to offend people or, do, or create problems, because they are a great generator of divergent thinking and opening people's minds and we need to let them loose like we need we need more of the incredible hulk and less less bruce banner in terms of and when we get into these social situations but it's going you know the paradox of this principled rebellion is it's going to cause friction it's going to cause static it's going to reduce positivity in the group cohesion in the group and that that low maintenance easy effortless conversation in the group because people are going to stumble of like, just as you were saying, you know, Armin, of you kind of meeting people, thousands of people in LA, there's going to be some stumbling of, I don't really know what to say, but I'm intrigued. And that's all you can ask for. But you have to create space for intrigue as opposed to a thumbs up.
0: I like this message. There's a theme across a lot of your content. It's like allowing room for trying things or playing, which has some rough edges to it. It's not always... What an odd world it would be if everything was the smoothest path to everything being smooth. What a weird existence that would be. And if you are not able to relaxedly try things like young people do or a five-year-old, you won't get great figuring out, trying, changing soap, if you will, or whatever it might be so that your next week is not like a super repeat of your current week play, if you will like actually cartwheeling is uh, one of the words you use in one of your chapter t- uh, names. One concept here in your book is insubordination. How would you describe what you mean by insubordination and why you are in praise of it?
1: Yes. Yeah, so there's the dictionary terminology that people are familiar with because we've seen a lot of insubordination get crushed in the political realm, both sides over the past eight years. You know, the Liz Cheney's, the Mitt Romney's. um, uh, There are those twin generals that actually, um, you know, spoke out against, um, you know, the military ideas of Trump. And there was uh, Rebecca, I forgot. She was an epidemiologist, Rebecca Jones in Florida, where she questioned the COVID protocol in Florida. And she was basically, she had a bunch of, you know, military officers come to her house and basically remove all of her computer equipment and technology and for just questioning of like, I I can't falsify the data. You've got all of these insubordinates who are basically saying, you have this social hierarchy, this triangle. I'm at the lower rungs. I am fully aware that there are other levels of managers and leaders and the c-suite and important people who have the best parking spaces better than people on maternity leave better than people that are pregnant better than people that are handicapped and they're saying regardless of the layers above me things are dysfunctional in the organization things are problematic in the group you're engaging in norms that are actually destructive to the longevity of the group and i'm going to speak my piece about this so that's insubordination by the definition How I kind of added to this to kind of say it's really about principled insubordination, there's really four elements. And the reason I like to create equations is because you can figure out what do you have to increase or decrease to intervene and create more principled rebels in the world. I'm using rebels and insubordinates as synonyms here. So you have deviance, authenticity, and contribution in this equation. That's in the numerator. Mm-hmm. So deviance is there's some norm you have a problem with. I asked this question to a bunch of my friends yesterday. Here's some of the norms that people had like beefs with. And you tell me if, if you feel the same, you've got children's clothing that's telling them what they're going to be like in terms of their gender. So you have lady killer for a little boy who's, you know, three months old, or you have, um, you know, princess, you know, princess master, you know, it's going to be for a little girl. It's going to happen there. Or, You're going to have, um, you know, future bully, not victim. That's going to be, you know, a little boy's shirt and these strange like clothing where you're like dictating like a carpenter of what the architectural structure is going to look like 10 years from now. And most of them are really bland, stereotypical visions of aggressive boys than aggressive girls. It's strange. Other people were saying it's strange that you say, sorry, after you sneeze or, that you shake hands with someone when you meet them, when we know that at least 20% of the country has really sweaty palms. The idea that dads get social approval points for babysitting or having their kids in a Bjorn while moms are doing this regularly and nobody says boo to them or even maybe even might not even hold the door. You have all these social norms. And the deviance part is, is that you recognize there are problems in the attitudes, beliefs, and norms that exist. That's kind of the the principal piece, the authenticity piece is to say the worst thing that exists right now in the public sphere is disingenuous conversation. If you say you care about diversity, but you're saying it because you don't want the mob to come after you. If you, if you, if you have a police officer that says, I don't see color and they actually do have some baggage where they actually respond differently to, you know, uh, a black person who's driving a car versus you know a little old white person versus me versus an 85 year old grandmother driving a car. Of course they operate differently when they see those three types of characters, but to disingenuous and say, you don't see it, that's where the problem lies. So the authenticity is about, can you express openly? The hallmark of a good society is the percentage of people that express what they truly think in the public sphere when that topic comes up. So that's why that's in the definition. And then the third part, as a protection against sociopaths and psychopaths, is the contribution part. It's really easy for me to come in here and every Arman idea that pops in, you know, I could tear it apart, mention some some you know, non-replicated scientific study that disproves what you're saying. Instead of playing improv with you, I just challenge every single idea you have. I question now, there's no way you talk to 2000 people in LA. There's no way that you said to people like your favorite color is teal, you know, I'm calling bullshit on you. So that's the opposite of the contribution. The contribution part is, hey, we're totally present. We're enjoying ourselves, we're engaging. Like how can we create the greatest content possible as we operate collaboratively together. That's the contribution part. And if you don't have that element, then you're you're in the space of you are potentially a barrier. And at the best case scenario, you're a neutral entity that's not really pushing society, the group, or your own well-being in a better place. And then on the denominator, so you want to increase all those. You want to increase deviance. Is seeing what the problems are in terms of existing norms, increase authenticity, increase contribution, and then decrease social pressure. I mean, right now, there is a tyrannical fear by way too many people in society that I should keep my ideas silent because at least I will retain my well being and nobody can harm me. And what they don't think about with that social pressure is what contributions are lost. By all of the Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, um, Richard Feynman's, Carl Sagan's, you know the Rosa Parks and the Bruce Lees who developed you know mixed martial arts for the first time. How many of these characters have even better ideas than these cats did? Because they they learn from the masters of the past, but they're not saying anything because they're worried about being rejected, or scorned, or attacked.
0: The social pressure is the canceller of sorts. And we don't want to fall into that trap. I don't believe you're a psychologist, Todd. So I am completely <laughs> countering. I'm countering. And I don't believe you're speaking English right now. Not sure what it is. My I kids more... agree with you
1: on that, that I babble incessantly. You <laughs> have at least the approval of three small cashmins.
0: <laughs> Cashens out there. I like to I gotta bring more counterforce at times. But it's true. If you just do that, boom it's just it's like Adobe Photoshop. When you have a noise filter on everything, you'll just get a bunch of dots that are unrelated and there's no cogent message to take away from it afterward. I broke this down. Now, contribution is a big one. Yeah, and then if you have a regular amount of content or something you put out there, then people can start to associate. There's like a, a solid force that comes with your expression that if you didn't have that expression and you still do the same things, people would say, where's your base? Where's your base of articles or discussions or something we can look at as you've been consistently here versus you're just a person in the corner saying something, I guess.
1: You, you bring up, yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point, right? I mean, Armin, like one of the big things about you that if you look you up anywhere on the internet is I love books, I love to learn. And one of the things of being, once you're an author, you meet a lot of other authors. I have met so many authors Here's I'm going to give you three categories that deviate from this principled rebellion piece. What, so one group is, I want to write a book because I want a bigger platform and I want to talk to more people, but they're not honoring the contribution to the audience that's going to buy their book with the really great marketing on an Amazon blurb in terms of they didn't do the research, they didn't think about this deeply their motivation is very selfish, and they're not realizing the opportunity cost of all the people that are reading it, hoping they're going to get some new added information that's out there. So there's that group that really is a deviation because you're not thinking contribution. You're thinking selfishly. You're also thinking that you're not thinking authenticity. You're thinking that the book has a purpose that you've not told the potential buyers. The other group is, here's a hot topic I want to follow up and get something out there while it's still hot. So when grit, when Angela Duckworth first came out with grit and she published her masterpiece book, a dozen other books popped out that involved grit. And I, the question was, what did Duckworth miss that you needed to write about? Or did you want to just, you know, ride the, be the side cart to her motorcycle? And while that's, I guess a nice thing to spend your time, I view life as more scarce, which is, Everybody has their unique life history, adversity, positive events, friends they've met, strangers they've met, nemeses they've collected, um, you know, their own genetic history. Nobody's the same. Like your book should be a representation of something that nobody else could ever put together. And the third category, which is kind of a little bit iresome, is this idea of I identify so strongly as an author. I want to put something out every two years. And I would say, what does the world need? If the world doesn't need what you're thinking about, then what's what's up with an arbitrary time frame of when a book's going to come out? So I I have a affinity for people that kind of the, the Robert Greene types, which they spent or the Susan Keynes that spend 10 years and they're really mastering, like, what do we, what do I know about this topic? What exists in the scientific canon you know what are philosophers talking about what's what's on the streets what are people th- how are people thinking about this and then simultaneously what's the counterpoints the reversals of everything that I'm thinking about like where am I wrong let me stress test this so you know one of the th- cool things about this book was to think about all right I wrote this pre-COVID Does this do the do the practices I'm suggesting from the scientific literature did they make sense for dealing with the pandemic and what about the book banning you know that's occurring on the left extreme wings of the left and right. That's current. Now, does this work in terms of understanding principle rebellions? And then you've got this, you know, bizarre. Attitude towards we're not going to pay attention to science if it conflicts with our feeling about justice and harm about society. And so as soon as anyone with the American Medical Association no longer says breastfeeding and they say chest feeding, I wanna know why and what evidence led you to switch terms and who that's not a woman is breastfeeding to say this term. And it's not because the term matters, it's the precedent that matters because now now your credibility in terms of you're following the evidence is up in arms. And that's worrisome because I really like to believe physicians have a handle of the science controversial topic trigger
0: i like when there's a this some discussion is looked at as controversy but pulling back is i don't like that yeah when that happens uh here's reality and then okay let's pull a step back and that's at some point we're too far from reality there's going to be issues why are we doing this pulling back for comfort And it has to return because reality just keeps going. It's like a continuous thread through time. And then it's just how far are we from it versus are we matching it? It's not supposed to be so smooth. And so we need people to counter the force. Would you consider it very valuable that there are um, dissenters? What does a dissenter look like? Do they have to be tougher than the average person? What does it look like?
1: Oh, it's such a good question. I'm so glad you asked it. You know, I really think Susan Kane's book, Quiet, had a very big influence on me where she, you know, she really talked about introverts. It's not like there's prejudice against them, it's that they're underappreciated, neglected, and ignored. And I, I don't think that falls, I don't want to put the, the word prejudice, but it's it's the idea of our iconic image of a leader has always been they're loud, they're strong. You know, they stand with great posture. Their feet are perfectly positioned. Their hands are at their side. They don't have the T Rex. You know, the person uncomfortable giving their TED Talk where their little arms hang out like they're, you know, a T Rex position, or their hands are are playing with their pockets and they're because they don't know what to do with them at the time. Like they're just comfortable in their skin, and their inflection is strong and powerful, and it resonates in large auditoriums. And she was saying what's the correlation between any of those things I just said and creative potential and performance and the ability to actually inspire people to use their strengths, build their strengths and leverage them for a good cause. And the answer is there is no evidence. It's just, we've been riding for years on, you know, movies like wall street, movies like Rambo and movies like apocalypse now of like, you know, who are the heroic characters that we're supposed to be following and Because of that, there is no prototype of what a dissenter is in terms of personality. But Dominic Packer, who is one of the authors of this great book, The Power of Us, and he has this model about the normative conflict model. And it's that a dissenter in a group, you can think of as having three parts. Do they strongly identify with the group? And we often think that the dissenter is the one weakly identified. Like, they're the person that's kind of not... The Allen Iverson, where he would say, I'm not coming to practice because I only show up for games. Practice is for...
0: Talking about practice? Is that what we're talking about?
1: Practice? (laughs) Practice? (laughs) Practice? What? So, he didn't identify with his teams. It was all about him. So, he... That's not the dissenter. The principal dissenter. The principal dissenter strongly identifies with the group, recognizes that you're going in the wrong direction. And I care so much about the health and longevity of the group that I'm recognizing this. And I'm I'm allowing my lens or my filter that the group is exposing to me. I'm seeing the cracks and I'm calling out the cracks. And the third part, besides, besides identifying and besides having a normative conflict is you weigh the costs and benefits of speaking or doing something about it and realize that, The benefits for the group outweigh the personal cost to me. And so I'm going to put it out there. So maybe that's where the personality comes in is, can you calibrate? What what calibration of uncertainty are you willing to accept that there will be a personal cost that you will incur? And that social scorn, that social persecution, that's a drop in physical and mental well-being because you're going to say something that's going to upset quite a number of people. And that, that element is, is important. And one of the ways of putting your thumbs on the scale so that there's more benefits and less costs is making sure that you can mobilize a sufficient number of allies and that you're not going at this alone.
0: This one's a key point here. If you are a person that sees something, and usually it is the person that cares more than the average, they're jumping in with more energy to, can I alter something? How do they not be that person where they say, oh, you you think you can change things? Because some might actually want to change things too, but don't have the oomph of that individual. And then others may want it to occur, but just leave me out of it. So there's like layers you have to handle. How do you, as a dissenter or person trying to alter anything, take into account others who are not at the same level of interest of alteration today? Maybe they would have been in five years, but you want to do it now.
1: Yeah, it's, I, I mean, so first of all, you are raising an in, the incredible difficulty of the minority voice, right? And I should, by minority, I should probably frame it as, it means lacking sufficient status and power is one way of being a minority, not having the numbers is being a minority, and then not having a lot of people that look like you. you think of like surface characteristics? It could be race, it could be gender, it could be, you know, religion, whatever it is that happens there. Any of these cases, you end up being the minority. How do you bring people along the journey who just want to fly under the radar and just have a good life? And you know, having the, the attitude, which is which is everyone always reminds me of this. It's like, listen, Todd, don't go after your nemesis. The best revenge is living a good life. I'm like, yeah, but I still kind of want to, you know, fight the good fight, regardless of it. I mean, you could you could do both, you don't have to choose between them. I mean. I don't want to have the the Count of Monte Cristo, where I spent 13 years, you know, imprisoned in a castle and kind of waiting for revenge. But you get to, you know, you you do get to work with your your nemesis, your interluters, Interlocutor? Is that how you pronounce it? Are we talking
0: about interlocutors, or is this a different one?
1: Interlocutor. Thank you. I'm not sure. It could be. I'm going with you. You've read. Okay. It. <laughs> yeah, and so so. One of the ways that we do this is we really want to spark curiosity and really kind of and have them recognize is that the short term, recognize that the short term concessions you might have to make in terms of giving up social capital to pursue this cause is worth it. And this is what's going to happen in the delayed, the delayed term that's going to come later that happens there. So you have to, you know, it's as simple as this. When you have Comcast or Um, Verizon is your cable company, and one offers a discount to make it cheaper, they have to say more than just it's 10 bucks less a month, they have to say how it's going to be easy to switch out the boxes and figure out the buttons and figure out where all the apps are and, you know, changing all your passwords and downloading new applications on your smartphone. It's so daunting that we just generally like, you know what, screw it. I can pay 10 bucks a month for the rest of my freaking life. I'm not going to calculate how many thousands of dollars that's going to be. I'm just going to stick with the status quo. So part of being a dissenter to get those people on board is to not be Comcast and Verizon, is you have to spell out, listen, I've calculated how much money you're going to spend unnecessarily for the next five years if you don't switch your cable box. I'm going to show you that there's a little bit of switching cost that happens here, but it's not as bad as you think. I'm just going to walk you right through it. But I really want to highlight how much more amazing you're going to feel about yourself and your work and where you fit in society. You're going to tell a great story to your kids and grandkids. You're going to have a greater autobiography by saying, I decided not to sit on the sidelines and do something against this bully, against, you know, against this idea that, um, You know, the book banning is an appropriate way to educate children as opposed to exposing them to things that are good, ugly, bad, mysterious, ambiguous, complicated, and work with them and let them ask questions and explore it. I'm going to challenge this and I'm going to take the friction because I want to, I'm going to feel proud of working with kids through difficult material. Even if it says offensive words about people, people of color, even if it says things um, has you know sex scenes in it and I'm 16 years old and I'm going to read about a sex scene in a book that happens there because they get to ask questions and if they don't they're going to learn it but without the conversation and that means randomness and why bring randomness when you can teach critical thinking
0: the way you describe it it is clear that the person who is looking to bring about a change of some sort tends to care quite a bit about the group and is putting themselves in a position where I have to put in way more energy than the average person. It sounds like they have to be quite conscientious because if they don't have conscientiousness, they're not going to plan out the way to get this across to everybody. It's like a large project of sorts that if a person was not fully energized for it and also saw something that they could do, they wouldn't take it on. So it almost sounds like a, The journey of a hero, if you will, to make little some changes versus the social pressure that's on the denominator part of the equation. Is that fair to say?
1: I love that you tied it to Joseph Campbell. You know, so I heard this story yesterday because now that I wrote this book, everyone's telling me stories about this principal rebel and this one. Um, 1970s. It was at the British Embassy. And Catherine Graham was her, I think her father owned the Washington Post. And then, so she owned it. She, got, she, she basically be, um, got it bestowed upon her to own the Washington Post. First woman to run a major newspaper. This is when the Washington Post was huge. So now it's, you know, obviously Buzzfeed is the most important nude source right now in 2022. So she's hanging out with all these men in the journalistic community in the 1970s in the British embassy. And back then the norm was this, I, I actually I can't believe it. I just heard this yesterday was there was a point at dinner where they would say okay time for the ladies to leave so the guys can talk it's it's so it's so anachronistic and the women would just all leave and they would go and they'd kind of have their long cigarettes in those I don't know what they're called those golden holders where it kind of extends the length of your cigarette and they would just go and kind of chat while the the men had the real conversation about you know where they're taking the you know, the business. And Catherine Graham didn't move. And she's like, and and she had a tough personality and people were just like, well, I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to tell Catherine she can't hang out with us. You tell her. And, then, and everyone just basically refused to kind of stand up to her. So all of the women left, she's alone with the guys and the guys supposedly pause for a few minutes and be like, all right, well, you know, Catherine's one of the guys. And they started talking about about you know all the numbers and, and all their competitors and what the plan was for the next year. And that night was the last time anybody at the British embassy ever told women that they have to leave the room for the real conversation to take place at the dinner table. And so I say this because while the typical scenario for the rebel is in the immediate term, people aren't gonna change. You're, there's going to be this this delay. They call it the sleeper effect, where it'll it'll get in people's heads. They'll think about it. They'll contemplate it. Maybe they'll do something similar. Maybe they'll be rebellious a little bit in what they're doing right now, but they're not going to flip in your direction. But every once in a while, you get a Catherine Grant, where in that exact moment, people are like have this aha, and they're like, yeah, why why can't intelligent creative interesting women not be at the at the table drinking you know drinking cognac and hanging and hanging and talking about the important things and and i think it's cool to have a little katherine graham on your shoulder which is maybe when i speak it'll be a katherine graham moment where like immediately i might get the benefits from it and that alone is worth speaking your piece, even if you're setting yourself up for failure and pain
0: (laughs) it's good to say the things that jump out at at you internally, because then if you don't say it, maybe a year from now, everybody else will have gone along on their way, but you're the only person who feels like, wait a minute, my part was left out, which is not an enjoyable. Everybody disappears after these moments, is the way I kind of think about it. So if you don't take the moment, then you're the only one who gets to at night. You're like about to sleep, and you're like, nope, everybody else is just eating a sandwich, and here I am, I missed my my show. Yeah,
1: I mean, don't I mean when you th- I mean. Armin, when you think about your regrets I mean your 20s like what's the the inaction the action that you didn't take that you wish you could travel in a time machine and go oh, back easy and, and say something or do something
0: Uh, that one's super duper easy I had a personal development blog 2008 9 10 11 called timeless information that uh, had like maybe 350 articles by the end of it and it's a lot yeah I was I was rolling which is good. I still have that nature, which is good. We never lose our actual nature. And also if you didn't have certain moments, maybe you wouldn't value the certain moment. Now, if you didn't have that error, now you'd value it. So there's a nice feature from that. But um, I was very on top of it, if you will, as far as the internet scene of sorts in this space. And then I transitioned, we'll call it due to local, the the denominator part of your equation. (laughs) to uh, going towards the law school and went there. And then kind of my item was left in the background and then I expired later. So that one's easy. Everybody, I think everybody has an easy one, but I would not have uh, left that alone. But that's part of the story, I guess. So
1: Is is, is it still curated? Is it? Do you still have the 350 oh. posts? I have the
0: ebook that I made of a compilation of my top, post, which is good. Anything you make, which is nice. I realized over the years, like you might lose your, let's say I didn't lose my external hard drive, but you'll have Gmail that has backups and this thing. So I have my top articles, but I actually, cause I left that and I was focused elsewhere and my priorities got altered for a couple of years. It actually expired my website one day. I was like, I don't have a backup. So that's okay. But uh, that's easy answer to your question. Do you have one like that? <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, tons. Um, I was working at a, I mean, this, the thing is, it's, it's really important to hold on to these, you know, these mantras, these icons, kind of these emotional experiences to remember when to decide, do I approach and be aspirational in my vision and my actions? Or do I avoid and try to prevent pain and failure and mistake and loneliness and persecution? And I, I think these these moments of previous inaction and the regret about them is if we can kind of make that more salient, we're, we're less likely to do it again. I mean, cause the mistakes and embarrassments, they're just, they're just great stories. I mean, in the beginning, they are the source. They are the source you want to hide behind helium and glass in a private room that no one has access to. And as time progresses, they become, you not only pull it out of the, the archives, you actually share them regularly because like, these are the most amazing stories, the failures, mistakes, and embarrassments. I mean, they're the best bar conversations. I mean, maybe one of mine was when I was in college um, and I didn't take school seriously because I was just really, I just didn't date at all in high school. And I had just discovered dating is a fun thing to do when I was in college. So that's basically all I did in college. And Carl Sagan had uh, this astronomy class and you had an interview to get in. And there were three rounds of interviews and they asked you, you know, why, why are you interested in astronomy? Um, what do you imagine you would contribute to the class? Um, what makes you think you're better than the other students that are here? This interesting, is this the test of humility? Are you supposed to say I'm not better than everybody else or actually say why you're, you're amazing. And I passed all three rounds, got into the class and I never took it because I heard it was the paper. It was, the, it was really paper heavy. It was a small, nine person class around i imagine this kind of viking round table and um you had you know you, you basically had to speak for 40 45 minutes every class um in these three hour sessions you, you could not hide behind anyone and public speaking wise i wasn't ready for it and i just i didn't even respond to the invite to come take this class it was carl sagan and carl sagan died a year later when i was in college Um, And so I just, I have such regret for not taking that class. I mean, I was going to be face-to-face with him twice a week, six hours a week, hanging with Carl Sagan with eight other people. Kills me.
0: That's a tough one. That makes sense. Right. Right. I have looked at some emails from 10 years ago where certain people I was going to work with, and then I left them being same thing as yours it's like right there. <laughs> that's hilarious. You have that, and it's like right there. That's funny. Have I made myself blurry? Oh, okay. It was blurry for a second. That is something. Do. How do you think about it today? Do you think about it as a? That's a that's a tough one. Uh, how do you think about it today? You, it's, it's. How do you think about
1: it? It's an impetus. I I share the story every time. I mean, I just I just taught my college class the science of well being before I came here, and. I've the captive audience. I tell them these stories so they can learn from my errors. And it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful tale of nostalgic horror. That's what it is. And every time I tell it, it's a, it's, it's a reminder an impetus that when an opportunity arises, particularly for a person or a project, if a person really intrigues me and they really stimulate me and they really kind of get me excited about how they think you know what their motivations are of like what like what is worth more than pursuing you know a collaborative relationship with these characters and when you're when you're a student in a class I mean you really should think of yourself as a collaborator as opposed to a a subordinate and when I think about projects it's really that that idea of if it gets me excited and I can't sleep and I keep thinking about it and I'm writing things, ideas about it, um, that's what I should be pursuing. And if it's something just for money and I'm, and I'm, I'm not scribbling things down at index cards and post-its all over my walls. And I'm not stopping my car on the side of the road to write out kind of things that I want to say in the next phone call, then what do I need an extra $10,000 for? I mean, that's not going to make me, that's not gonna make me happy. I mean, I want the I want the meaning. I want the profundity. I want the poignancy. And, and so the Carl Sagan story is a reminder of meaning profundity, profundity, and poignancy far out that outweigh the benefits of any stress load or workload that could come at me.
0: This is a great point about using past circumstances when they were like that one. Of like, okay, not doing that again. And I will see when that is in front of me. And then when things do work out, like when I always talk to people a few times it would work out super duper. And then if I talk to a new person, I would think I can't I can't not talk to this person because it worked out super duper a couple times from scratch, from zero, and it turned into great. So it's not on me to leave this alone. They can leave it alone, but Those two impetuses, one is from the things that didn't occur in the past, and one is from when things worked to not avoid that again because the opportunity was there. The past can be like a really strong force for us.
1: Yeah. And and you're, you know, the things that you're talking about, you're talking about, you know, the bright spots, the dark spots is this is where you find the power for where social change can occur. I mean, I was just I was just teaching in class today that. Denmark is one of the happiest countries in the world. And Togo, Africa is one of the least happy because it's, it's like a political civil war every single day. But that's the average. If you look at the distribution, you find there are people in Togo, Africa who are saying they're living their best life humanly imaginable. And you're seeing people in Denmark who are saying, life is horrible. And you, the data, the quantitative data are not sufficient. The qualitative data will tell you, how do we improve that society? Because this book really is about how do you get closer to utopian societal ideals? And the way to do that is just what you're saying, is really look at the extreme margins. So when you talk to those people that are functioning at high levels in Togo, Africa, they've got wisdom. Now, some of it might be luck. Some of it might be, you know, they had privileged circumstances for how they were raised and they're protected in some way. But whatever that is, we want to replicate that and we want to figure out is there a cost effective way that we can actually, you know, broaden that out more wildly into institutions and structures in that society as opposed to the United Nations just saying we want to increase literacy rates. We want to make sure they have clean water. We want to make sure that we have, um, you know, we have a way where they can have agency in their own food production, so they're not dependent on another country. All those things are good, but they're not specific to whatever is the culture in Togo. To get to the specifics, you got to dive. You got to dive deep. You got to be curious. You got to be humble, and you got to be courageous enough to know that I have no idea what's in store for me, but. I've got to talk to these characters and see what's happening at the ground level. And that requires more work than just listing the 10 things every country needs to prosperity.
0: If we use that example from the third section of your book, we have taking or understanding from those who are in the minority in some space. Let's say we take someone in Togo who is not the default and they are looking to make a better existence in some form. How do we look at what is good or different about them? And how do we expand upon that to maybe branch that out to other people who will probably be waiting for it?
1: Yeah. It's a big question that you could break down into small psychological tools. I mean, one of them is a question that should be almost an, an, automated strategy for when you're exposed to someone that has an idea unlike what you expect, which is what does this person know and why do they stick with it despite the fact that the majority is saying otherwise. And this, this, is, this is the appeal of the minority. The, the appeal of the minority is if they are consistent over the course of time and they're persisting in their ideas, despite the social pressure to win social acceptance, to win social approval points, there must be something to them. There must be something to their ideas that uh, makes me want to attend to them. So if you're the minority, persistence, consistency um, of message is really fundamentally important to make sure that that spark of intrigue stays alive. And if you're the audience member, you have to be asking yourself, why is this person risking not gaining social status just to stick with this idea, and you want to hold on to this. So when someone pipes up for the first time in, in, in you know in a in, an office meeting, a faculty meeting, you know in, in any convening, and you haven't heard them before, you'll find that often the audience is incredibly quiet and incredibly receptive to that message because you're like, whoa, this mousy character. Is about to throw something out there and they haven't said something before. And you know, it's like the C's the part and they're waiting for it. And so you have to realize is that if somebody is going to take the microphone, knowing that rejection is possible, that willingness to sacrifice, you have to be asking, why are they willing to risk themselves? Why are they, why are they willing to be so brave? And the other part that you can do as the audience is can you start to identify with a little bit less ego in terms of part of the way you contribute to the world is not your own ideas, but amplifying the voice of people who have better ideas than you. And that's a way of contributing. And so just really just kind of keep this almost like superhero cape on you at all times, which is how can I walk through the world searching for ways that I can amplify the voice of those that are marginalized, those who are at the extremes and those who haven't been heard from. And one way that you can do this, and this was this was a study in the Academy of Management Journal is when someone has status and power and they just physically turn their body towards that person and speak the ideas that you have heard from that person. It's as if you become the microphone and the amplifier and you know and the the woofer and insert whatever stereo metaphor that you want Twitter. for that person. And it's, it's as simple as physically looking at them, speaking, and then make sure to make this even better. Tell me, where did I get that right? Where did I get that wrong? So you have to give them the opening to add to you what you're going to say. You're not being the white savior. And it's really important not to think of it that way. You are the amplifier. You wanna create the platform for them but make sure you give them space at the end where they can contradict you or they can kind of add to the breadth of what you said.
0: I like that. Like the you're giving their voices being expanded. Their direct look comes to you. These moments, we all notice these, they have somewhat emotion attached to them. Like when the quiet person speaks, suddenly it's like everything, suddenly everybody, wait, that's John? John is saying something. This hasn't happened for months. (laughs) What is this? They are key moments. And then what they say has so much weight because of how much silence there was before that. There's like a huge buildup to that. And the assumption that that was not the way. They were quiet forever. And now something is being mentioned. There's like an extra weight attached. These are some key moments. Probably having it in an office right now somewhere. Somebody's like, I'm this. Who are you? Who are you? you?
1: You know who is the master at this and I don't know if he does it on purpose and I know it's a controversial example but mm-hmm. I like to use controversial examples. Mm-hmm. Clarence Thomas is there is a period I, I don't know the exact number but I know it was at least this. It was at least 10 years since he publicly spoke as not just not just wrote down the minority report but actually publicly spoke about the minority report to other human beings. And when he did, it was all over the airways. It was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Clarence Thomas cares about something so much that he's going to verbally like emit sounds from his mouth. What? Now, I'm not saying wait 10 years, um, but there is something to be said to be the opposite of me who tends to be flirtatious and choose your, choose your time points wisely for when you speak and so that people actually do, um, you know, Part the C's when you when you actually decide that you're going to say something and don't waste your time on you know spittle and spiel and um, when you can actually be using it for good at other times.
0: Audience element is big. Sometimes I switched if I was posting too much on one platform. I'm like, well, great, there's another platform. I'll go over there. It's no big deal, different crowd. And then it's uh no issue there. But if it's too much in one or seems like too much in one, I self-adjust. One thing that you're, you're reminding me of as you're saying, what do you think about the concept of, it's kind of similar, like deep work and putting in thought for hours on something. It's sort of like related to waiting a long time before releasing something, but it's on the production end. Do you like that concept or do you like uh, constantly like outward external feedback from, from people?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll separate the work from the feedback because I think, you know, you're making me think of Cal Newport of like having these <laughs> His strong, strong eight, to eight to 10 hour sessions of writing where all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, I've had to urinate for, for two and a half hours and I just realized that now I've been so laser focused and flow while I'm working. Um, I think there's a there's a more precise place to play with this, which is, Feedback, publicly expressing half-baked ideas is problematic if you're giving people an opportunity to give you ideas and you don't really trust or respect their viewpoint in the first place. Now I realize this is harsh because there's a little bit of anti-Buddhism here of but some people are very reliable sources that they they don't hammer haw and they're actually going to give you constructive feedback and they'll tell you that when you know when your shit stinks, like those are really valuable people. They're wise, they're intelligent, they're trustworthy, they're credible, and they, don't, they will call you out on your own biases and failings. So really curate a wise council of characters. And there should be great cognitive diversity in that group in terms of what they do for a living, where they've lived, you know, what their backgrounds are. It should be natural. It should, it should, if everyone is similar of yourself, you failed at creating a wise council. Now that wise counsel, I've got about eight people that are in my wise counsel. They're the only people that I exposed these ideas over the past six years writing this book, but every one of them, I have such trust in them. If something didn't work for them, I knew it was me, not them. If I posted like snippets on social media and people were, people were telling me, I'd have to be like, I'd have to, I'd have to ask the question. Is it me or is it them? And now I've just doubled the amount of work that's required. So I'm I'm a big proponent of have a good stable of characters in your life that are better than you in a number of domains and really like leverage them, which means that if they think there's something wrong at the minimum, you could do it better. And at the worst, it is wrong.
0: I'm going to apply that one. I'm taking that one for myself. Classic right there. That's a good point. Yeah, it's like having your own specific group that you know and value that and their feedback is uh, paramount in a way. That's wonderful. I would like to check. In regards to the art of insubordination, what would you say is a message you would want the average individual to take away from it that they can apply during their week or their month or if it's not an application, something they should have in their mind going forward, that will help them get things going.
1: So, I mean, so many. So let me just do the first one that comes to mind. This is by no means the paramount nucleus of this book.
0: This is the paramount nucleus of this book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can already see the Instagram um, heading with, with confetti appearing all around those words. Um, we have to, we have to realize uh that the way people get authority and the way people get power in these hierarchies and there's so many social hierarchies. I mean even, even you know even with us and this podcast I mean there's such a deference because I'm entering your home like this is your space so there's there's a hierarchy. I mean you you are above me in this space and I am playing playing collaborating and working with you but it's your hospitality that creates the space and we it's good to acknowledge these things as these little small social hierarchies exist and as we try to flatten them and work with them we have to realize nobody is above being questioned challenged or argued with and anyone that does not allow those qualities it's like you said before when we we're talking earlier about you know these litmus test of talking to strangers and asking you know is your favorite color teal it allows you very quickly to say oh you would never get along with me in the long term because that you found an unusual question so disheartening that it actually prevented you from wanting to talk to me. This is great. Like I just, I just excised the tumor before it even got to form underneath my skin. This is wonderful. It's a good thing. And for authority figures, if someone can't allow you to ask genuine curious questions, if someone's not allowing you to actually wonder about whether this is a good idea, even if you don't have a solution yet, right? A lot of leaders and a lot of authority figures, they say, don't come to me with your concerns unless you have a better alternative. Well, you just cut out all of these great opportunities to tweak whatever it is you're working on. That's absurd. So then you get, it's a litmus test. And anybody, everybody, every government official, every teacher, if you're a kid that's listening to this podcast, Armin, if maybe, you're, maybe your average age audience starts at uh, 15.3 years of age, every teacher Every parental figure, every caregiver, there's a 75-year-old guy living next door to my house. He's lived an amazing life. He's a smart guy. He says things that are absurd so many times. Quick story. Do we have time for a quick story?
0: Time is all the – this is what time was built for.
1: (laughs) Okay. Another controversial story. But it involves my kids, not me. So it's it's morally acceptable. So (laughs) – so my next door neighbor is a, a real hardcore Trump fanatic, and I have—I shouldn't say I have no problem. The pro—the problem with that identification is the proselytizing. So for now, there's there's other problems, but let me not get into that. It's it's the idea of you're going to constantly try to convert me and tell me how reality should be viewed. There are other problems, but leave that for a political podcast. So when that, um, was it e-news when the tape came out about the grab them by the bleep? I think that video. Yeah. Okay. So that, so my daughter was, I think 10 at the time I have my twins and this happened just, it was like one of these really incredibly proud parent moments. And this fits with my point. So my neighbor came by super nice guy. He's like, he's like another grandfather for my, for my daughters. And unprovoked by me, my daughter went up to him and said, hey, why, why do you like Trump when he grabs women by the bajuboos? Like, I don't, Like, why would you like a guy who does that? And, and, and I just stood there and I was like, oh man, you're like going right into the, you're going right into the fire. I mean, you're, you're diving right in there. And there was, there was a lag. So there was like a two-second lag that was like, I got to think to myself, how do you respond to a 10-year-old, a 10-year-old girl who's telling you, why would you vote someone who feels comfortable grabbing an older woman, an older version of here by the vagina? And so how you answer that is going to affect her for the rest of her life. because, And she's, she's speaking her piece, right? And she said it nicely. So think about, I'm pausing on purpose. Think about all the different ways that you could respond to this 10-year-old. Now, this 10-year-old is not into politics, does not have a favored politician, is not registered for a political party. They're just a kid that's wondering, why is it cool to grab a woman by the vagina? This is what he said. Clinton did worse than Trump. When Bill Clinton was president, he was really mean to women, and he grabbed tons of women, and so why should it matter what Trump did? And I just shook my head. I shook my head side to side. I was like, man, you totally missed the moment. Like you totally, you did." As, you, as Armin, you've been saying for several times in this podcast, not as if you're repeating yourself, it was worthy of repeating, is think about your audience. He was treating her as if she was a Democrat, registered, and voted for Clinton and she wasn't even alive when Clinton was president. And he wasn't talking to a 10-year-old girl who's asking the really deep-seated question that bothered her. And, and, I, and so I didn't say anything at the time. But later, a couple of weeks later, I talked to him and I said, listen, my daughter doesn't even know who Bill Clinton is. My daughter doesn't even know the difference between Republicans and Democrats. My daughter, I don't think my daughter even knows there's a red one and a blue one, much less elephants and donkeys. Um, like, like, who were you talking, like, were you talking to me and not, I said it more nicely. I said, were. was it, was I the audience and not my daughter? Because my daughter was asking a legitimate question. And I know that you really care and possibly love my daughter. And she just wanted to know, would you be the type of person that would protect her from a guy who would do that? And he felt really sad. He felt really guilty about it. And And it was just... And I don't know if he said anything else. He said he was going to talk to her. I don't know if he did because she never, my daughter, never said anything to me. But I think about that story as these principled rebellious moments. They're really we have to think of them as they're these choice points we have throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout our months. And some of them are big, like an Alexei Navalny, you know, going against Putin and basically saying we need a democracy, and now is in jail. But there are also the smaller moments where someone just says something with the real place of from a place of curiosity, and they're going to question and challenge what you believe or you're going to be the one that has an opportunity to question and challenge what you know is wrong. And can you do that? Can you do it in a way where there's integrity, where there's authenticity, where there is empowerment and where there is a place where you are recognizing the humanity of who you're talking to and not sticking with party lines and not sticking with ideologies and not sticking with half-baked, half-cooked, pre-digested ideas that you're spouting that comes from the media or whatever your group is saying is the appropriate thing to say. And if there's anything that I really wanna push upon people is we all have these opportunities to be courageous in these moments. If a 10-year-old girl can approach face-to-face someone that she has to look up to physically, Who's in their 70s and seems like someone that you're not supposed to question we have the power to be able to say there are no dangerous questions the only dangerous question is the idea that there are dangerous questions
0: we can't be limited in that capacity that is a great message i like that the example we have these key moments that we have to take into account at that moment because there might be hours before that and hours after that. But for that minute, there was a key moment. Todd, Kashnan, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode of the show, special 333, and discussing a variation of topics related to concepts I understand and live in. And also from the book, The Art of Insubordination. Glad to have had you on this one.
1: You are an incredible conversationalist, my friend. Thank you. And we are out.